Hello and welcome to a special podcast today. This is Vijay Jayanti. Cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens NFT, their success stories, crashes, they've become a part of our daily news routine. Their advertisements are everywhere and there has been a lot of discussion here in India on the ads, the trading platforms and also a lot of curiosity as to how the government and the Reserve Bank of India are going to deal with them from the policy perspective and regulations. We have a special guest today to give us a broad overview on the subject, Gopalan Ramchandran. GR is a financial sector and derivatives expert, consultant, a teacher, writer and a blogger. He has been tracking cryptocurrencies and the regulations across the globe. Listen in as to what he has to say on the subject. We have recently had a discussion at Prime Minister's level on regulating the advertisements of cryptos. How big are cryptos in India? Excellent. Cryptos are said to be very big, but the origin of these cryptos are not in India. Obviously, uh, there is a concerted effort of uh, selling the cryptos into the Indian market, which also would require that somebody pumps it in here, either on acceptance of dollar payments, and then subsequently there's a trade out here uh, in the uh, rupee market. But the major uh, issue that we need to keep in mind, or the point we need to keep in mind, is there is no record of these transactions. They are all off-market transactions because both at the production stage of the cryptos, or what's known as the mining stage of the cryptos, and then the transaction stage when they are bought and sold, there is no formal exchange. And in order to make it very big and put pressure on the regulatory agencies, I think both the media and those uh, people who might refer to as crypto pushers, like drug pushers, are making it humongously big. And there are numbers like uh, 600,000 crores to make it enormously big so that everyone in the regulatory institutions the Reserve Bank of India, the Securities and Exchange Board of India, Parliament and the Prime Minister's Office will pay attention to this. There's a tremendous amount of pressure and bullying and because nobody has any clear evidence of what's going on, everyone now seems to be paying attention to the need for so-called regulating cryptos, cryptocurrencies. That takes us to the question of like, how did it become so big all of a sudden when we still have people who are asking, what exactly are cryptos? Cryptocurrencies are not money at all. They are not any asset. They're basically payment mechanisms, payment systems using the blockchain method, blockchain technology, which is a distributed bilateral ledger and it's a closed user group. And you can have hundreds of people within an NC2. That many bilateral contracts are possible. So that Tracing of contracts between people inside a closed user group is possible. It could be used for businesses. It could be used in securities markets. It could be used for trading anything. Effectively, the blockchain technology is for trading something, giving you something, and I take something. And what I took will obviously have this origin. It's sourced from you. And then it goes on so that at any point in time, both the origin and the destination of the subsequent transactions are all recorded. Moreover, no one person can fiddle with the records because both the ends, the start end and the finished end, are recorded so that the bilateral manner of having record keeping in the blocks is so foolproof in the context of they never get hacked. Then someone wanted to popularize the blockchain technology and then they said, 
there's money in it. So how can you have money without a double entry bookkeeping? You and I know that in order to earn money, I sell you bread, you pay me money. And what about the money which governments use? When the Reserve Bank of India issues money to the government, remember there's an IOU from the government. It says, I issue bonds in the favor or in the name of the Reserve Bank of India as a beneficiary and I take money from you. Real money is created from thin air, but there's a double entry bookkeeping, both the debit and the credit, who gets it and who gives it. And this is how everything is done. When I buy bread from you, the bread comes out of you, the money goes away from you. For you, it's debit money. For me, it's debit bread. In the context of cryptocurrencies, you would notice that there's no double entry bookkeeping at origin. It's absolutely fake money, fraudulent money, non-existent money. And then they say, I've got cryptos there. It's very easy to create a block. And when everybody else has a stake in it, then they say the emperor doesn't indeed wear clothes. And then you create enough number of blocks, enough number of cryptos, and then others start believing in it. In fact, a large part of the media hype is primarily aimed at getting more and more people to believe that there's something real in it. And you'd notice a concerted effort, the non-fungible tokens in terms of art and other things, so there's a make-believe. And I tell you, when this all started, the world got put off by the enormous bailouts that the U.S. Federal Reserve did in 2008. And as a consequence of the falling mortgages market, the wipeout of mortgages, unemployment, many institutions were on the danger of being completely flooded and finished off, flattened. So the U.S. Federal Reserve did two things. It created money. All the reserve banks, all the central banks in normal course keep creating money. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. It's nothing new. Every time someone needs something to do, you create money from thin air. So in 2008, many central banks created money to give liquidity. Effectively, it's giving liquidity. As a consequence, the institutions in bad repair or disrepair were nursed back to health. This wasn't appreciated by a lot of people who thought that only big institutions were being rescued while ordinary people, ordinary households were down and finished. So the Bitcoin, as the way you see it, first emerged in January 2009. It was basically a fantastic effort at creating a new world which you said is beyond the machinations of central banks. And people believed in it, and especially the millennials. They had the new technology, the new digital technology, and a belief that what governments and central banks do is inappropriate. So they believed in the whole story, and which is why Bitcoin has a founder who has only a pseudonym. When you really look at these things, good things have always a name behind them. Facebook has Mark Zuckerberg. Amazon has it, Reliance. How come for such a thing which is epochal there is no one person having a name to it. So it's basically a concerted effort at having a make-believe and all those who are buying into it. And there's a very clear seduction process. When I create a fraudulent cryptocurrency and I sell it to you, you give me good money and you get nothing. Now, what would you do? You would like more people to believe in it because you want to now get rid of the bad money. Therefore, the whole story of building momentum about the goodness of cryptocurrencies comes from all those people who are being cheated. I want to say this a couple of more times.
So the more the number of people who get cheated in the sense that they give away good money and they receive so-called crypto coins, they would go out and say, hey, I, I have the crypto coin. Will somebody buy it from me? And when would you make it actually saleable? By creating or by reinforcing this make-believe and making all the good stories and then you want the exchanges. So cryptocurrencies were actually a backlash to the enormous 2008 bailout. I want to say something more. Just as the drug problem in America, the narco problem in America was very really a consequence of the Vietnam War and not during the Nixon period, a little before that, when Robert Matramara as Secretary of Defense in Kennedy administration actually exacerbated the war, big, big time. And then people got disgruntled and then draft came in where the young had to join the army. So the drug culture became very big as a social backlash and a way of pr protesting against the political machinations on the US of A. Similarly, cryptocurrencies are actually a backlash to the 2008 bailout. And now they want people to believe that there's a safe world away from the machinations of central banks, uh, away from the beguiling activities of uh, central governments, and therefore, this is the way the world would be. Let me add one more thing here. The chorus, the litany that sings the praises of cryptocurrencies, you know, spread across the world because many people bought in. And now, with more and more cryptocurrency, there's competition. It's not just Bitcoin, it's Ethereum, and all those other names. So anyone can have a blockchain and then say that I've got cryptos. And everyone who thinks that, hey, my coin is going to be doing as well as Bitcoin, starts buying into it. So the multiple channels that's putting pressure on institutional regulatory mechanisms to make cryptocurrencies legal. And all of them are losers. Every time you say somebody is a cryptocurrency billionaire, that billionaire's wealth is being measured in good money. And what those billionaires have done is sold cryptocurrencies to others who are waiting to become billionaires. I get it. Two things that emerges from what you told me right now is first it started as an alternate currency to challenge dollar or I did not like dollar as my medium of exchange. So I wanted to go and create something else. Uh, but in the 10 years or 12 years since then, it has taken different proportions. So cryptos today, they are not exchange currencies alone. You call them cryptocurrencies. So they have moved from being an attempt to being a currency because a currency should have had some underlying. Because when sovereigns issue currency, whether the values right or not, they have some underlying measure to get it out. But in cryptos, you don't have that. So whether cryptos can be an exchange currency, which is like a rupee or a dollar. Second is, once they have moved from being a currency a means of exchange to being an asset, what happens? Okay, actually, being an asset is a downgradation or a degradation. Let me also say this. Money sits at the top of the asset pile, even though it doesn't have any particular underlying. Remember, the gold standard died on the 15th of August, 1971. The creation and circulation of money actually does not need gold or dollars. Remember the Chora Empire? The Choros had currency, metal coins, long before the Christian era began. And they ran a wonderful empire. How does money actually work? 
the empire, the kingdom, the treasury says, this is coin and I'll back it. What does it really mean? Not that it has any underline. You pay the workers. In, they create Kalanai Dam. They do all the canals in that day, Kaviri Delta region. And then you pay them with these coins. And then they're also taxed. All Chola citizens were taxed on the basis of their land holdings, agricultural output, trade. And then they could pay the king back in the same coin. That is how coins acquire, money acquires value. Remember, when you pick out the currency bill in India, it says, this is guaranteed by the central bank. And then below that, the governor signs, I promise to pay the bearer so many rupees. Beyond it, there's nothing. But what it means is, this money is totally valid when you need to pay your tax dues. So if I will get back the same money from my citizens as taxes, then I have to believe that this is good money. Second, when will the kingdom have citizens who are paying tax? Only when the king has made the kingdom prosper. So prosperity, money, government, and taxes are all linked. So that's the origin of money. Money never had an underlying asset. The only underlying to money was people's proficiency, productivity, prosperity, prudence. And then much later, because the British, which was not a colonial, or sorry, excuse me, a, a crown expedition, they started as the East India Company. They colonized many places as a company, but not the government. And they could not impose the pound, shilling, pence on any of the places. Therefore, they had to create the gold standard, which said that if I need to sell 10 tons of Lipton tea in the London market, but I buy my teas in Kenya, in Ceylon, in India, how do I get my management account and price them? So they had this gold standard which said, if one ounce of gold, or one grain of gold, that's how the British gold standard came, if one grain of gold is so many pounds in our country, how much is one grain of gold in your country? So they created a hub and spoke which enabled currencies to talk to one another. And in order to avoid cheating, they said, hey, you've already said that one grain of gold is 10 rupees, which means that here on, to print one more 10 rupees, you have to have one more grain of gold. So the gold standard started determining or imposing money supply because of the British. This worked for a while, and then it died because of its futility. It was absolutely stupid. So many countries withdrew from the gold standard, which is why towards the end of the First World War and the Spanish influenza, the world was aghast because they couldn't create more money to serve people and fight the war. Because it said that for every grain of gold, you could have only so much money. Therefore, countries simply killed the gold standard. But the gold standard, unfortunately, reared its head again towards the end of the Second World War in 1945 in what's known as the Bretton Woods Conference, where the countries went back to the gold standard in their own total stupidity. They said, okay, but this time we'll have a small change. Not every currency will be running around gold. Instead, because America is now the champion of the world, we'll do the following things. We'll have a pyramidal structure. The dollar alone will speak to gold, and all other currencies will speak to the dollar. So between August 1945 and what we see as August 1971, currencies, the ruble, the Deutsche Mark, the British pound, the Indian rupee, all spoke with the US dollar, and the US dollar spoke with gold. But the Vietnam War, on the one hand, had created this entire drug culture, 
It also made Richard Nixon, the president of the United States of America, wake up to the stupidity of the gold standard. We needed to conduct a massive war in Vietnam, and you, my treasurer, my chairman of the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve, tell me that they can't create money. So on the 15th of August, 1971, in a very bold and admirable manner, Nixon killed the gold standard. So the world doesn't have the gold standard thereon. So most people now tend to believe that from 1971, every government and every central bank has been cheating by creating money. Therefore, they said that cryptos are better. But my answer is not over. Does money really require any assets to back it? Let's see this. If you go back to the Kaveri River in Tamil Nadu, you need to move from the right bank to the left bank. Okay? And then on a particular day, 500 people need to move from the right bank to the left bank. One boat can carry 20 people at a time and it can make, say, 10 trips in one hour which means that one boat is sufficient to carry 200 people from the right bank to the left bank. Now, if you have 500 people waiting for you, you need two and a half boats. If you have 1,000 people waiting for you, you need five boats. So money supply should be seen as a number of boats you require to cross the river. So money never had any particular linkage with gold or the dollars. It became a fantasy thereafter. And one of the persons who actually made it all work that way was Ayn Rand in Atlas Shrug. And people hung on to it. And after the, and she wrote the book when the gold standard was, I mean, was in vogue because she wrote it in October 1957. But once the gold standard died in 1971, you had Vietnam, you had price controls. America was in great distress. So everybody was in some kind of disgust and disrespect for the gold standard. It continued thereafterwards. And all the way to 2008, when they realized that Ben Bernanke was creating money to save the world, which is absolutely the correct thing to do. So, cryptos are now trying to make us believe that fiat money, fiat money in the sense that what you and I use as ordinary money is filthy, cheap, and absolutely uh, old-fashioned. Therefore, they have stepped into a huge vacuum in their own way, and fantastic marketing to make us all believe that they are real money. Okay. That's my answer. Uh, are central banks really going to think about like where they are in terms of the sovereign currency vis-a-vis -vis the cryptos that are all around us? I think India has tremendous clarity. Money is created from thin air, whether it's created on metal, paper, plastic, or digital. Money is created from thin air. It's effectively an accounting entry. And I think the Reserve Bank of India is absolutely clear. They have fantastic leadership. Uh, we are not swayed or seduced by the claims that the crypto pushers are making. Similarly, the Bank of England. Similarly, the People's Bank of China. Similarly, the Bank of Russia. Similarly, the U.S. Federal Reserve. Actually, and the European Central Bank. I have a decent amount of uh, working relationships with the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, Bank of Russia, People's Bank of China, and the Reserve Bank of India. All the leadership there know that cryptos are make-believe. It's just that, how do you communicate to a mass of people who are prepared to access this, let's say, force? They're gullible people, and they know what motivates them to accept it. Therefore, they are pretty cool. They're going to be very, very cool about it. Money needs digitization. 
And money has always been digitized. Let me take you through a couple of steps. Say, let's go back to the 1990s, any year, 1980s if you want, when the central government of any country needs money to make the economy. It's like the boat. When 500 people are there to cross the Kaveri River, you need two and a half boats. When you have 600 people waiting, you need three boats. So as a leadership of the political apparatus of a country, they work closely with the leadership of the central bank. The other thing is central banks are actually departments of government. There's another farce that's being played out by many Nobel laureates that central banks are autonomous public institutions. They have their own acts to grind. We'll take them on sometime later. But the point is, you know how the economy is growing, how many boats you need, and you create money. Where does the created money go first? It always is an IOU. The government says, I borrow so much money from you. Here's a bond I issue to you. That can be digital. And the central bank gives money to the, the treasury of the country. That is again digital. And what does the government thereafterwards do? It pays its vendors digitally. It pays others digitally. You buy uh, the provisions uh, for the army. Everything thereafterwards is paid digitally. And it comes to the banking system. It could be the State Bank of India. It could be Wells Fargo. And all the retail, all their transactions, ultimately what they get. And remember, the central bank is also the lender of last resort to the banking system. So all transactions between the central bank and the banking system, once again, is digital. So the wholesale institutionalized part of money has always been digital. There's nothing new about it. So the central banks know that the crypto pushers are creating a fantastic drama, got lots of footfall, and then they have the so-called trick base. Money at the wholesale end has for long been digital. Now, what about the retail end? Which is where you and I did that entire thing in October 2019, along with Dr. Pradeep Chandra. Retail-level digitization had a flaw in people's thinking. What many planners did was, or think was, Money exists in some real circumstances with physicality, in bank accounts, etc. And then in order to expedite the transactions or to make them possible, they said we have payment systems. Amazing, okay, including Paytm, which was absolutely unnecessary, but redundant. You don't need a payment system to make money become digitized. Money is already digital. And then, of course, they built a huge business. Now, where it really worked was the retail end, the apps end, the devices end, was with the private sector. And they may have done it in their innocence, ignorance, or they may have done it with a scheme. They said, hey, these guys don't know that money is anyway digital. Let's kind of make it occur like we are digitizing it. So the Google Pays and all those are uh, reaping a fabulous harvest from that little statement that money wasn't digital until now, they're digitizing it, and here's a payment system. So that's redundant. What other countries may not be doing is something that we won't discuss, but what India will do is, if the wholesale is digital, the retail can be as digital if everyone's device and if everyone's telecom carrier was with the government. It's one of the fantastic advantages that India has. BSNL and MTNL are government-owned, and right up to your handheld device, the same government money issued but by the central bank is in your hands. You don't need 
a payment system. Now let's get back to the motivation of the two things here. Cryptocurrencies will also be used by the payment system. So the payment systems have a fantastic game plan. They will stay quiet in the context of what is currently known as processing fiat money, legal tender transactions. For them, there's nothing to lose. They're only carrying. When people on their own create this humongous momentum in favor of cryptos, they say we start processing cryptos too. For them, it makes no difference at all. So you now notice two things happening. Those who have created cryptos and sold it for a massive profit would like to say that it's very good because they can create more cryptos and earn more dollars. The second, there are those who have invested hard-earned dollars to buy the cryptos and now they don't want to be told that they bought trash. So they would like the story to continue that cryptos are fantastic. The third, the payment systems networks would like to believe in the same because they say, hey, it doesn't matter to us whether we process wheat or we process rice. So long as our mills are working fine, we are making money. So in the main, this whole convergence of motivation objectives is what you need to address. And the media seems to have gotten onto this because I believe journalists have some kind of a, let's say, happy payoff, monetary or otherwise, in terms of carrying the stories of cryptocurrency. That's one of the reasons why it's gone up to the level of the Prime Minister of India. Uh, exactly. If it is not being, if it is a currency, should it be regulated by Reserve Bank of India? Or if it is a financial asset, should it be regulated by SEBI? And how does it get regulated at all? Okay, I'll go through this. I had actually said that money sits atop the whole asset pyramid because it's the only one that works on the competence, proficiency, productivity, and prosperity of people. All other assets, including your car, gold, the Apple telephone, okay, all these are usage dependent. Remember, when you buy land in Texas, it occurs to be very cheap, okay? Uh, incidentally, <clears throat> what you pay for, say, 1,000 square feet of land in New York City, with that money, you can probably buy 5,800 acres of ranch land in Texas. So you might wonder why. That's because the 5,800 acres of ranch land in uh, Texas only produce so much. All other assets are valued on the basis of what they produce, a mango tree, a teak tree, an acre of farmland, a house in a battery park, a city in New York City, all these things are usage dependent and how much cash flows they will produce. Money alone, free money alone doesn't have a valuation. When the central bank says, I promise to pay the bearer thousand rupees, that's it. It's neither more than thousand nor less than thousand. So money sits on top of the pyramid. Let's get back to this. Cryptos are not assets. Cryptos are not money. They basically make believe entries in a blockchain and people who have bought it have only a record to say that this block belongs to me. And they think, therefore, it now has a value. Okay? And the more the people that come to accept it, more their chances of selling it. So who would regulate it? A, they're not money to start with. They are not money because every central bank knows that money means a double entry bookkeeping. We issue money to a borrower called the government 
and the borrower gives a bond to me. So there's a double entry bookkeeping. And remember, fiat money can be extinguished. I have all these in my episodes in the past. Fiat money can be extinguished. How? The Chola Kingdom made such a great effort in welfare state economics, building dams, building canals, that people were prosperous. They paid taxes. What does it mean? When taxes are paid, the coins come back, okay? The emperor or the king issued coins, made people prosperous, and people paid taxes, the coins come back. Now, the IOU settled. The king can say, look, my job is done. I set out so, I set out so many coins into the economy. The coins have come back. The economy is fine. So in the real world now, what happens is any government borrows, incidentally, all the things about uh, quantitative easing, what uh, Dr. Ben Bernanke did uh, with the Obama government, all these things. Let's see, let's trace a couple of transactions. The U.S. Treasury issues bonds to the U.S. Federal Reserve. And then the U.S. Federal Reserve says, here, take $1 billion, do what you want. So that's how money penetrates the economy. Okay? And when the U.S. government collects enough taxes, it collects all the things and tells the U.S. Federal Reserve, remember, sir, I had issued a bond and I had to pay you that interest. I'm paying you now the principal. I'm paying the uh, interest. Return the bonds. I can now scratch it. I can mix it. I can tear the pieces of paper. Real money can be extinguished. Now, come to cryptocurrency. They can't be extinguished. Once I create a crypto, there's no double-entry bookkeeping. I've cheated you. I've kept it in your hands. And... There is no taxation. The person who has issued the crypto is not government. So you keep a crypto, you sell it to somebody, you sell it to somebody. It never comes back to me. It's not an IOU. So what happens is, this is one of the things that the crypto guys are counting upon. The world will be flooded by cryptos that are actually toxic waste. Okay, they'll never come back to me. So when more and more people have cryptos, they will believe that this is real inextinguishable and enduring assets. So that's a, a digital play, a completely marvelous third level play that makes people believe that this is the real asset while gold and other things aren't. We'll come to that a bit later, but now because this is not money, the central bank say that, look, we know what you're talking about. This is not money. It's not that. And what about the asset part, the financial assets? For them to have a security, remember, I'll go through the two steps of regulation. Regulation can be classified into two. One is called positive regulation, where you say, look, all things are banned until you come and apply for it under a certain statute, and they give you permission to do something. Consider equity issuance, consider bond issuance, or a mortgage-backed security. Everything is banned. But for latency analytics, one of the recent great IPOs in the Indian economy, for latent view to make this IPO, they apply to the Securities and Exchange Board of India. So, to get regulatory approval, you need two things. A security and an issuer who seeks the application or the permission to launch the equity of latent view analytics. And then SEBI process it and says, I give you approval to sell your equity. So, regulation is called positive regulation where Without their yes, you can't be doing it. It's illegal. The other side is negative regulation where the act very clearly says there is no question of giving you permission. Consider India's 
narcotic drugs and psychotropic substances act okay it says all trades in narcotics ban 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 now you don't have to apply to me i'm not going to give you any permission if i catch you holding a substance depending on the quantity you hold we'll do this 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 so regulation of cryptocurrencies has to be seen in this context are they toxic does anybody know if they are toxic we don't know yet so the narcotics drugs and psychotropic substances kind of act can't be applied yet to cryptos but china has done that a very brainy move a very brainy move by the people's bank of china they did that 3 and a half 4 weeks ago or maybe 5 weeks ago very clearly china is way up in this they know that this entire thing is a farce which probably emanated in the USA maybe in Ukraine and they don't want china's millennials to get trapped in it and we know that china doesn't run a very clear parliamentary democracy so they just said all transactions in cryptocurrencies are banned it doesn't matter whether you do it in private you sell it to somebody else abroad but within china it's banned it's a drug it's a narcotic drug so they have applied the second part what i said negative okay on the whole there is no question of giving you any permission now coming back to the positive part in india somebody has to apply to get permission but the cryptocurrencies don't have an issue remember that is one of the major shortcomings cryptocurrencies just exist in thin air who issued them we don't know unlike latency analytics which goes to sebi and says i've got this issue please give me permission cryptocurrencies don't have any one issue huh? so nobody is applying for positive regulation now the indian government has acted with great classy decency absolutely classy decency they know everything it's not that they don't know anything okay they know what china did they know the possibilities and then they said okay now that a lot of people are doing this i would like to quote a particular writer in the hindu business line miss lokeshwari who calls it a muggle she's so terrified not terrified she's so very anxious the cryptos are not being regulated i don't know why but she doesn't know anything about regulation how it works so she says what this what is this muggle about so you create media pressure so people start paying attention and as a consequence now they're acting now sebi has been excellent about it this is not a security there is a issuer so inesco on the 12th of november has been able to get the first approval and now let's see this invesco runs an exchange traded fund a fund of funds where the equity stocks inside that fund are blockchain companies which in turn create cryptos in some part of the world we don't we don't know where they are so invesco says sebi i understand everything so you need an issuer you need somebody who will come and write on an application that's the name of this uh, invesco and what are we doing here we are creating an exchange traded fund and in this fund we have equities they are not cryptocurrencies so you don't have to worry and those equities are blockchain company equities which in turn do the mining so sebi has very clearly done the right thing under the law this is a security deserving of approval it's left to the buyer whoever wants to invest in the exchange traded fund if they know the pros and cons it's fine and remember on the 8th of september i had a major conference call with the us federal reserve the cftc the commodity futures trading commission of the usa and i have to say why this is very important uh, that's the time 
when the annual conference of central bankers uh, uh, takes place in Wyoming. And what was it all about? What should we do? I told them it's basically a derivative. And as long as it's a derivative, consider whether derivatives. Whether it's not created by you and me, it doesn't have an issuer. And whether derivatives are fine. And what you could consider is, if an exchange were to see this as a derivative product, put some numbers into it, it's a zero-sum game there afterwards. You, you're there in a derivatives exchange, you're long, somebody else is short. If the number goes up, the long wins. If the number comes down, the short wins. And therefore, this does not have a macroeconomic impact. SEBI has the same view, fantastic. I'll just put out a LinkedIn uh, video uh, confirming what I did on the 8th of September. Okay, this again takes us back to the old uh, issue we talked about. If we consider it a derivative, then the derivative, if I look at it as an equity derivative, like being an equity uh, person, I would say like uh, when I say uh, equity derivative, there is an underlying stock there. So what is the underlying here? Is it just... The underlying stock here is a blockchain company. The underlying stock here, see, this is like this. If you can't, tra if you can't trade gold, can I trade a mining company that mines gold? That's a proxy here. So what investors actually done is built a portfolio comprising companies that are blockchain companies, which in turn do the mining of crypto. So the profitability of the companies is supposed to reflect the rising value of crypto. Therefore, they have that itself is the first barrier, other acceptable barrier. It funnels in the value of cryptos into the blockchain company. And then Invesco has an underlying called the equity of blockchain companies. So SEBI says, look, so long as the companies have an existence certified in some other economy by their securities regulators, we can't crib. We may know it's bad, but we are not here to say what is right and wrong. If it qualifies under a certain law, we will give it approval. Therefore, SEBI has given it approval. Okay. So that is like almost the first instrument we have, which is an Indian... Okay, this is not a crypto instrument. It's actually an exchange-traded fund. It's like an index. Remember, uh, stock indexes don't exist. They're also derivatives. So this is actually an equity derivative, but I'm not, I'm not finished. I have to go back to a commodity derivative. The, the reason is, in all parts of the world, commodity trading is not regulated under any law. Only the second part, the drugs part will apply. If you created salt, you're free to sell it to me, okay? Uh, the entire uh, chemical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the crude oil industry, you look at all the downstream products, crude oil is not traded on any exchange, crude oil derivatives are. Crude oil is not regulated, natural gas is not regulated, copper is not regulated, okay? The wheat and rice markets in India, the, the underlying is not regulated, but the derivatives are. So, what we had come to as a consensus was, look, cryptos are not money. So long as the central banking system understands it, there's nothing uh, bad about letting the other thing pass because people want it. It's like a joke. Can you stop jokes being shared on WhatsApp, on Facebook? Can you stop the entertainment industry? Can you... It's all fiction. If people want to buy and sell into it, it's a zero-sum game. What you need to now realize is Treating them as either commodity derivatives or equity derivatives is fine because every transaction has an equal and opposite reaction in the monetary front. Someone loses $7, someone gains 
there is no monetary ripple. So the current thinking is, let them be derivatives, which is exactly what the Chicago Mercantile Exchange Group has now done. They have Bitcoin futures. Okay, so Bitcoin is some number. They, they say, look, we are not trading Bitcoin here. Some number called Bitcoin futures. You come here, you're long, you're short, you're all members of the CME group. You do your trade, you pay one another. We are doing fine. We just create a mechanism, a trading mechanism, and we earn transaction fees. So the current level of distilled thinking, I think there is no further uh, reversibility to it. Very clearly, the crypto drama is over. Let me kind of call that. By Friday, I'll be making this very okay. public announcement. Okay, I will finally come back to a very layperson's questions. We got a whole lot of this thing, clarity on the policy and uh, what it exactly is. Uh, but as you said, you talked about the millennials who made it like big. Uh, in fact, we are getting a complex when millennials tell us like, hey, you don't have a crypto, you are not investing properly. You have negative returns and you have equities which are not... Uh, um, at a valuation that you can buy, you should be buying a crypto. But I have a hesitation to say like whether I should tell people who ask me the same question whether they should go and buy or not or what happens, where do we stand on crypto at the end of this conversation? It, it's left um, entirely to your resoluteness. Uh, obviously, remember, winners don't tell you how they want. I have to go through the behavioral psychological process. If I made money going up to the Everest in a real sense, and I can go back to the Everest again, I will never tell you how I made money by going up the Everest. Because I would like to go back there and get more money. People normally share ideas and put pressure on vacuous, flawed, losing ideas, including the self-help books. Good things are never shared. So the entire bombardment, People have made a lot of money on MRF tires in India. Does anybody come and tell you buy MRF tires? They don't. They don't. Actually, there's greater noise. There's a self-selection bias in the context of uh, drawing room conversation, boardroom conversation, uh, dormitory conversation, what we call the watercolor conversation. People wax eloquent about things which are basically dodgy, which are basically scratchy. Things which are very profound are never spoken about. You just keep doing it all over, all over again. Okay. I want to say something about even the IPOs. I'll come back to this question. Zoho doesn't want to do an IPO. Zero doesn't want to do an IPO. They don't want to sell stocks to others. They say, look, you've been making so much money. Let's keep it to ourselves. Okay. Let's keep it to ourselves. Why should I sell shares to you? No point. So invariably, the millennials who are bombarding you with private and public questions, messaging, including what they do in mainstream media, used to say, hey, they've been victims of a big gameplay. And on the one hand, they felt good about the experience, but the uh, aftertaste was not all that great. They just want more people in. That's basically what the millennials are doing everywhere. Fine. Great. It was like a fantastic conversation we had. We'll keep coming back probably when bigger picture emerges in India as to where we are headed next. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope I've been clear. Thank you. Thank you.